on the world. The first time he had ever seen her, two years earlier, he had been a starving wharf rat in New Madrid, Missouri, and she had been with her father, Ezekiel Farrell, the master of the steamboat Missouri Zephyr. She had been so far above him in station that only the most starry-eyed fool would ever dream that he might someday win the heart of such a lady. Corey had been that starry-eyed fool. He had looked at Lucille's deep brown eyes and honey-blonde hair and told himself that one day she would be his. Wonder of wonders it had come to pass, and all it had taken was bloody battles, months of separation and illness, near starvation, but finally the day had come. A few weeks earlier, when a minister had pronounced the man and wife in a cave under the city while a Yankee bombardment thundered down above. Corey knew he should draw strength from the knowledge that he and Lucille were alive and together and in relatively good health, but somehow today he couldn't. Why don't you come inside, she said. Aunt Mildred has baked some biscuits. After weeks of food being in perilously short supply in Vicksburg, a few staples such as flour and sugar and salt were becoming available again. They came from Yankee supplies that General Grant had ordered distributed. Though it pained him to do so, Corey had to give the man credit for that much. Grant had been willing to starve Vicksburg into submission, but now that the city had surrendered, he was doing what he could to alleviate the suffering. And so far there had been no reprisals against the former defenders, at least none that Corey had heard of. Instead, the Confederate soldiers had been required to surrender their weapons and give their parole that they would not fight against the occupying troops. They would even be allowed to leave the city. It was a stunned peace that hung over Vicksburg now, but it was peace nonetheless. Corey looked at the street. The Yankee soldiers who had marched by were nearly out of sight now, the shattered commands of their sergeant fading in the distance. Coy put his hands on his knees and rose to his feet, feeling a second of weakness as he did so. He had been sick for months, with recurring bouts of a fever he had picked up in the swamps northeast of the city back in the winter. He was well now, but he hadn't regained all of his strength yet. Biscuits sound good, he said as he looked at Lucille. He summoned up a smile that he didn't feel. That's right. You've got to keep your strength up. Coy nodded. He wasn't sure what Lucille meant by her comment, but he knew what was in his mind. Now that food was available, he would eat and grow strong, because the day would come when he would be able to fight the Yankees again, to strike a blow for the Confederacy's freedom. Hundreds of miles to the northeast, on the road that ran west from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to the town of Chambersburg, a column of wagons was forming. Earlier, around midday, the clouds that had rolled in during the morning of July 4th, opened up and dumped a deluge on the area. Rain fell in blinding sheets, wind howled like a lost soul, thunder crashed and rolled, and skeletal fingers of lightning clawed across the blackened sky. Hours later the storm still raged. To the men who lay wounded and in agony in those wagons, it must have seemed as if the maelstrom would never end. For the three days previous, a different sort of maelstrom had gripped the countryside around the crossroads town of Gettysburg. The Confederate Army of General Robert E. Lee, the Army of Northern Virginia, had collided with Union forces, the Army of the Potomac, under the command of General George G. Meade. Some might say the resulting battle had come about by accident, 
and it was true that neither commander had intended to fight at this particular time and place. But it had been Lee's idea all along that, by leading his men into Pennsylvania, he would draw out the Yankees. Following the Confederate victories at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, Lee's strategy had seemed sound. Make the Yankees fight one more time and crush them. It had not worked out that way. For three days, Lee and Generals James Longstreet, A.P. Hill, and Richard Ewell had thrown their men against the Federal forces that held the Long Ridge south of Gettysburg. It was appropriate that a cemetery occupied that ridge because tens of thousands of soldiers had died there, more than could ever be interred in its ground. On the final day of the battle, July 3rd, Lee had sent an entire division of Virginians under the command of General George E. Pickett into the center of the Union line. The Yankees held. The back of the Confederate attack was broken, and now there was nothing left to do except gather the remnants of the shattered army and pull back, retreat to Virginia in hopes that there would be another day, another battle, another chance for the South to emerge victorious. As he huddled on the seat of a wagon in the drenching rain, the young man called Roman didn't care about any of that. From his conversations with Captain Will Brannan, he knew more about the strategy of battle and what had happened here at Gettysburg than most men would give a slave credit for understanding, but that didn't matter. All Roman wanted was for the wagons and the convoy to get moving. The sooner Captain Will was home, the better. A cavalry officer in a long slicker pulled his horse to a stop next to the wagon. Water ran off the brim of his hat in a steady stream as he called to Roman, You there, boy. Can you handle that team? Roman tightened his grip on the reins attached to the team of mules in front of the wagon. Yes, sir, he said, raising his voice to be heard over the pouring rain. I can handle them just fine. The horse soldier raised a hand in a wave. Carry on, men. He rode on down the line, checking more of the wagons. It wasn't much of a line, Roman thought, more like a jumbled mass of vehicles. With luck, when they started moving, they would all head in the same general direction toward Cashtown and Chambersburg and ultimately Williamsport, where they would cross the Potomac River back into Virginia. That is, if the Yankees didn't catch them first. There had been rumors flying all day that Meade was going to attack as the Confederates began their retreat. Roman hadn't expected to be given the job of driving one of the wagons. The Confederates were short-handed, though. As an able-bodied man, Roman had been put to work. In a way, he would have preferred to be in the back of the wagon caring for his wounded master and friend, but at the same time he was willing to do whatever he could to help Captain Will. The day before, after Pickett's disastrous charge, Roman had been riding on the perimeter of the battle with Will Brannan when a stray bullet had struck the officer in the chest, knocking him off his horse. Roman had patched up the wound the best he could and had taken Captain Will to an aid station. The injury was a bad one, but Captain Will had lived for nearly a day already, and the surgeon seemed to think that was an encouraging sign. Captain Will's brother, Mac, had come by earlier in the day, before the rain started. A cavalryman in General Fitzhugh Lee's brigade, who had been involved in a different part of the battle, Mac had been looking for his brother, and Roman had called out to him when he happened to see him riding past the ambulance wagon. The reunion between the brothers had made Captain Will perk up, but only for a moment. Then he had lapsed back into unconsciousness, 
He was still alive, though. Roman checked on him as often as he could. This wagon, like all the others in the train, was packed with wounded men. Some moaned, some cursed, some screamed, as the agony of their injuries tormented them. Roman shivered as a thin, watery voice behind him uttered, Oh, God, let me die. Others lay insensible, and a few even had the spirit and courage to summon up smiles and words of encouragement for their fellows. But most cried out in one way or another, and that blended with the noises of the storm to create a melody that chilled the blood of any man who heard it for very long. This had to be what hell sounded like, Roman thought. The cavalrymen who had stopped by the wagon a few minutes earlier, or another officer who looked the same in the bad light and pounding rain, rode toward the front of the column, waving his arm and shouting, Move out! Move out! Get these wagons rolling! Roman wished he had a hat to keep the rain out of his eyes. Plenty of them lay scattered about, and he knew he could have picked up one of them. But more than likely, that would have meant he was wearing a dead man's hat, and he wasn't going to do that. He blinked away the water as best he could, and flapped the reins as he shouted at the mules. Balky under the best of circumstances, the beasts really didn't want to move today. Roman picked up the whip that lay on the seat beside him and lashed at them. The merciless blows started the animals plodding forward. Roman tried not to think about the fact that here he was, a slave, whipping some poor creatures to make them do what he wanted them to do. He couldn't afford to feel sorry for the mules, not when Captain Will's life might depend on getting him back to Virginia as soon as possible.